Hi, this is Sheila Styron. I am the chair of the Transportation Task Force. And on behalf of that task force and the Environmental Access Committee, chaired by Becky Barnes, we are happy to welcome you, if a little late, to the 2020 Transportation Forum presented by our two groups. It is entitled to Transportation and Beyond. Um, we apologize for the little late start, but we'll have a couple of extra minutes. Uh, we're excited to bring you all of our presentations. Um, right now, I think we're going to give the um, Mika, our um, operator, uh, the opportunity to give you our opening CEO code. Do we have that? I have your opening uh, CEU code. Okay. It's 490 E as in everything and the number nine. Again, it's four, nine, zero. E as in everything, nine. Okay. Um, we have a huge game plan this week. Today, we're going to start with some um, educational sessions. And we will have our first session will be 45 minutes, 40, 45 minutes long, and then we'll have a 15-minute break or thereabouts, and then we will have our second two sessions. Um, Ron Books will introduce our first presenter, and then we will go on our, I won't talk about much now, I will say that her name is Carol Catcherside, and then, and then we will have our second presentation, which will be on the impact of federal laws and regulations on um, accessibility of transportation and infrastructure projects. And Christopher, well, that, that's Carol, and Christopher Bell will be our second uh, presenter. And um, he actually worked on uh, drafting the ADA, and he's uh, going to uh, talk about the pending legislations and terminology and things that we all have to live our transportation lives by. And then our third presenter will talk about updates on emerging technologies and services impacting transportation and environmental access. And this will be Adam Cohen, who I will introduce a little later. I'm sorry if I sound a little nervous, but it was kind of nerve wracking getting starting today, started today. On Monday and Tuesday, we're going to have four workshops that will help us sort of pick some main agenda items that will help inform ACB on how we would like them to uh, arrange their transportation platform moving forward. So we will expect a lot of audience participation on those days. And by the way, today and all days, we're leaving it up to the presenters to decide when they want to take questions. There is no chat box, but you will be allowed to raise your hands and Mika or whoever our Zoom operator is will bring you in and let you ask those questions. So our um, Monday and Tuesday sessions will be um, the first one by Becky Davidson and Karen Gorgi will be on um, reading the signals and navigating the chaos. All of the things, the street furniture, the roundabouts, the curb cuts, the, the strange things that we have to deal with, the unusual uh, intersections, and we'll talk more about that later. 
And our second um, session will be um, presented by Pat Sheehan, who is on the ACB board. And he'll be talking about the new paratransit and the new mobility, new mobility paradigm challenges that uh, face all of us as people with disabilities. Um, and then our next session on Tuesday will be they roll up the sidewalks. And the main presenter for this session will be Connie Sims. Um, and this will be about all the difficulties faced by people in rural transit situations. And we'll want a lot of input so we'll know what to pass along to ACB, what they can be working for us moving forward. Um, and then our final session um, on Tuesday will be um, presented by our own Ron Brooks, who actually works in the transportation system. And he's gonna talk about paratransit. If we could design it from the ground up, what would it actually look like? On Wednesday, our final day, um, we will have um, Ron Brooks to summarize all of the ideas that we have gathered together throughout our work sessions following our more educative sessions today. And then after Ron, we'll have a great training presentation session um, by Judy Shanley, um, who will help us talk about how to build lo local coalitions and other things that we can do to support our local activity levels. Um, I mean, our, our local advocacy work. And uh, Judy is from the National Center on Mobility Management from Chicago, Illinois. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Ron Brooks to let him introduce our first speaker. And uh, unless anybody has any housekeeping questions right now, go ahead, Ron. Well, good afternoon, everybody, or good morning if you're uh, out here in the West like I am. I want to thank all of you for joining. I would love to acknowledge all of you who have come in on ACB Radio. Uh, if you are listening to us through your Amazon Smart Speaker, uh, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I am super excited about this workshop. This is something that we uh, actually planned in Chicago because we knew that we would have amazing speakers and then we didn't get to come to Chicago and we're, and we have a big an even larger pool of amazing speakers. And so I'm really excited about the opportunity today to learn uh, the opportunities tomorrow and uh, went Tuesday to con to contribute and discuss. And then the opportunity on Wednesday to wrap it all up and lay out a plan for building an advocacy strategy uh, that we can all use to improve transportation and mobility uh, in our communities where we live. I could tell stories upon stories about our first speaker because I worked with her. I won't do that to her or to you, um, other than to say that uh, I uh, met Carol Ketcherside probably back in about 2002, 2003 at a conference at that time, she was uh, leading uh, a, an eight-state regional transit trade association and doing a masterful job. I think she was actually handing out bottles of hot sauce at a booth in Albuquerque, but I'm not sure. Um, I then had the opportunity to uh, collaborate with her 
uh, on a number of projects just across the industry. And then in 2013, uh, I came to work for Valley Metro uh, in Phoenix, Arizona to manage accessible transit services, uh, where Carol was managing an, uh, all sorts of things. I think they had her do a little bit of everything. And then at one point, Carol was actually the person that I reported to. Um, she uh, currently leads Valley Metro's planning and development activities. Her title is Deputy Director of Planning and Development. Um, so she's responsible for um, much of the agency's efforts around uh, planning, designing, developing um, light rail corridors, um, bus rapid transit, um, bus operations, you know, just kind of how the, how the network of transit system comes together. Um, she also has a passion for accessibility, uh, for mobility, uh, and for communities that are connected and inclusive. Um, so she, I, I invited her here because the first time that, that I had to learn how projects were planned and funded in the Phoenix metropolitan area, which of course is a large metropolitan area with a very complicated environment of many jurisdictions, many different rules, many different funding streams, lots of politics. She sat down and explained it to me over breakfast. Um, and then we continued it over lunch and over dinner for the next three, three months um, because it's pretty complicated, but she managed to make it simple. And so when we thought about how do you describe funding and planning for transit, I thought Carol would be super because she works in both areas. So Carol's going to start by giving us an overview of how projects are planned and funded, and uh, I will let her take it over from there. Carol, thank you so much for joining, and you have the con. Wow, Ron, thanks for that introduction. <laughs> Hi, I'm Carol Ketcherside, and as Ron said, I'm the Deputy Director for Planning and Development at Valley Metro. At least that's what I am today. <laughs> um, they do change my role frequently, it seems, and I always tell my, my uh, superiors, just tell me what you want me to do and I'll do it. Uh, I have been in public transportation for more than 35 years. I did, I started my career in Topeka, Kansas. I spent a lot of time in San Antonio, Texas, and I've been in, now in Phoenix for um, getting close to 14 years. So um, that said, I will um, try to do what Ron says I did for him, which was make this process simple. I, I don't recall that. I wish we had recorded those sessions. Um, I will try to make this process simple for you all. Um, and what I'm gonna do uh, this morning is I've got three sections to my presentation. Uh, the first one is how is a transit system planned? I'm gonna try to answer that question for you. The second session is how is a transit system funded? And then the third section is who are the players and the decision makers and how can you get involved? So those are the three sections. And what I think I'll do is go through each section and then pause a, a couple minutes to take some questions on that section, just kind of break this up a little bit so you're not just sitting for 45 minutes. So uh, if that works, then I will proceed. So first section is how is a transit system planned? And I'm gonna start with a little bit of background. You have to look at public transportation or transit. I use those words interchangeably. Transit, you have to look at it as a public utility. 
Transit is a service. It's like having water, running water in your home or a sewer system in your home, electricity in your home. There was a time when transit was privately funded, but that has not been the case since, um, it was a gradual pr process, but that has not been the case since sometime in the 1960s. The Urban Mass Transportation Act of 1964 started the flow of federal money to public transportation in recognition that it was an essential service that was needed by our community that could not pay for itself. And it's more like the provision of streets that get built in your community, highways that get built, connecting communities, your schools, your libraries, your parks, none of those things pay for themselves and neither does public transportation. <clears throat> it is uh, subsidized with public money nationwide. So every community, every city, I don't think there is a single transit system in the country right now that is not subsidized in some way. So a quick overview of what the planning process <clears throat> involves. First of all, the first step would be to identify a need. If you don't have a need, you don't have a, you don't have a need for a plan, you don't have a project. So you need to identify the need. And then after that, you develop the vision, the goals, the objectives. So what do you want to achieve? How do you address the need that you've identified? Then from there, you're, you're gonna develop various scenario strategies. Those would be different alternatives to reach the objectives that you've identified. And then you evaluate those strategies. No strategy is going to be a perfect solution for all people involved. Different alternatives are gonna meet some objectives better than others. And so a lot of the planning process is the decision-making exercise of deciding how do we meet the most objectives for the most people and how do we compromise and how do we make decisions about how to we can't give everybody everything they want we don't have the resources and then some of those things are going to be conflicting with each other anyway um, so we go through a selection of projects process, which is a prioritization process. And that's how we develop plans. We have very long range plans, which can be 20 to 30, maybe even 50 year plans. And we have short range plans, which are typically one to five years. We often develop a long range plan and then Periodically, we will develop or refresh that short range plan as it fits into the long range plan. Since things change all the time, you have to constantly look at what you're, you thought you were gonna do and how do you maybe need to refocus it because you didn't know that, say, a football stadium was gonna be built in a certain location. Nobody could have predicted that 10 years ago when the long range plan was, was written. So in this process, you might also hear the term transportation improvement program, which is part of the planning process. And I just throw that out because these are terms you might hear people say. The transportation improvement program is, is sort of a financial document that's used in the programming of funding in your area. So it's, it's a tool that supports the plans. It's not really a plan in and of itself. Then once you've decided what you wanna do, what you wanna accomplish, 
what your projects are going to be and how you're going to fund them over time, you implement these things. And we never stop refining what we've done. We're always monitoring the performance of what we've implemented and then making adjustments for how those things are no longer working for us or how we didn't quite hit the mark. And if we adjust something in a certain way, we can get closer to what we intended. That is a constant process for planners. <clears throat> Few items to note um, about planning. Public input is a very significant part of the entire process. Sometimes planning processes can take, can start 10 or 20 years before a project before project implementation ever begins. And as I mentioned, these long range plans can be easily 20 years and even as much as 50 years in length. So when you're trying to influence the big picture for public transportation, you have to think way in advance. However, there are also things that happen in the shorter term. So the planning process, as Ron said earlier, is complex and messy. And the role of a planner whether it's transportation planning or land use planning or any other kind of planning, uh, is to discover the best ways to use resources available to meet the objectives of the community. And the community, as you all know, is not homogeneous. It's everybody is different. We have a, a huge diversity, which is what one of the things that makes our world a wonderful place. But our members of our community do not all have the same needs and the community is not going to be of one mind. So we bring people together, we help people understand the needs of others, how we might solve the needs of most, and how we might move forward. <clears throat> Things can change at any point along the way. Some of these processes, especially for capital projects, which I'll get into in a moment, are very, very, very long. Things change, and so, it's a constant renewal of what we thought we were going to do and how are we going to change it now that we know something that we didn't know before. There is also, um, well, it, we, we do a lot of analysis and we make a lot of data-driven decisions, but it's also a political process. And that's, sometimes we feel that's unfortunate, but it is a reality that we have to deal with. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. So transit planning comes in two basic varieties. You have capital planning and you have service planning or operations planning. And these two things both will show up in the regional transportation plan. Uh, pretty much every urbanized area or big cities, small cities, even rural areas will have a regional transportation plan. That's that long range plan. This is a multimodal plan that includes freeways, major streets, public transportation, bicycle and pedestrian routes, sidewalk improvements, even aviation if it's in a, a city that has an airport. <clears throat> so the transit portion, the transit plan that, that the transit folks are working on becomes an element of a regional transportation plan as it gets woven into all these other things. And I might mention here that public transportation has a very, very strong tie to, um, to pedestrian route improvements. Um, we, we, are, we advocate quite a bit 
for pedestrian improvements that allow people to get to the transit uh, locations. And there might also be a state transportation plan, if, especially if you're in a completely rural, unurbanized area. So I thought I'd just mention that. Regional transportation plans also address a variety of other things, such as air quality, how does transportation planning and, and infrastructure affect the quality of our air? It looks at social equity. It looks at uh, trans what we call transportation demand management or trip reduction kind of programs. And that includes everything from carpooling, van pooling, uh, just using the bus, or even teleworking, staying at home, not even making that trip at all, which is what so many of us are doing these days. And it also looks at safety and security of your transportation system. One of the big things that's also included in, in regional transportation planning is requirements for public involvement. And I, you're gonna hear me say that over and over again, because as a planner, that's a huge part of what ethically we do for the community. And we encourage public involvement. There are many opportunities and I want that message to get out to this group today that there are opportunities if you just pay attention and get involved. So when we develop plans, um, we look at alternatives that might involve different investment levels because you, you can dream all day, but if you don't have the money to build it, you can't do it. Um, so we, we make assumptions about investment levels and that might be depending on a tax that has not yet been approved and it might be um, that we're putting this plan together in order to, to illustrate for the public what they're going to get when they vote on a transportation tax. So we might look at a high level of funding, a medium level of funding, or a low level of funding, and tell the people what will they get for each of those fundings. And so as, they, as the community at large looks at what they hope to have for their community, and then they see what tax they have to approve in order to get that, that they can make that value judgment. Is it worth it to them? And that will help inform the way they vote on a tax. <clears throat> so as I was mentioning, the regional transportation plan takes the very long view. From that regional transportation plan, there are any number of more technical and short range plans that detail the steps in the planning of each of those very, very big long range and conceptual projects. So I mentioned that there's capital planning and service planning as the two major types. I'm gonna talk a little bit about capital planning first. Planning for major capital improvements includes things like building a new transit line that requires infrastructure like rail in the streets or subway tunnels. Um, it includes what we call bus rapid transit uh, infrastructure, uh, guideways for those bus rapid transit lines. It might include the building of a transit center where a number of transit lines come together and people can uh, transfer from one line to another. It includes maintenance and operations facilities, the purchase of fleet, paratransit fleet, bus fleet, rail fleet. These are very lengthy projects. And I like, I can sum up all that technical stuff I just told you by saying, if it's big, and expensive and lasts a long time, it's a capital project. Um, the concepts for these things exist long before the details for these things. 
These items show up in plans well in advance of anything happening. And um, that gives a lot of opportunity for people to have public input. Uh, they're typically capital plant projects are paid in for in part by federal funding. And we're gonna talk about funding a little bit later. But the federal planning process is very, very long with many hoops to jump through. And we, we get frustrated by those hoops sometimes, but I always remind myself, these hoops have a purpose. They are an important part of our democratic society. They ensure public participation, environmental considerations. They ensure that ADA and civil rights and other laws are accommodated. They ensure that no populations are, um, I, we use the word disparately harmed. That means unevenly harmed, like we don't, we're not just hurting one group of the population more than another in order to make something happen. Uh, the, and then the federal procurement process also ensures that there is inclusion of various um, businesses in, the, in bringing these projects to fruition. So if any of you out there have businesses that would support bringing these projects to life, there are federal rules in place that that ensure that everybody gets an equal bite at that apple as well. So there should be plenty of opportunity for the public to know about and input on major capital projects for many years before they happen. I'm gonna talk a little bit now about planning for service on the street. This is what we call service planning or operations planning. And when I talk about this, I'm talking mostly about fixed route transit. Paratransit service also requires planning, especially at the policy level, but paratransit service is largely driven by where fixed route service is provided. And so I'm, my focus today is a lot on the fixed route service, but I don't mean to um, not pay attention to the paratransit service. Service planning moves just a little bit faster than capital planning and on a somewhat shorter cycle. Most transit agencies have a good idea of what they're planning to do in terms of service, probably about two or three years before it happens. And one reason for that length of time is that it, for one thing, it takes up to two years to acquire a new vehicle, a bus or a paratransit vehicle, or it takes probably even longer than that to get a rail car. So it's a very lengthy process. And so if we're planning service that's gonna require new vehicles, we have to plan for that. <clears throat> so minor adjustments happen to routes much more quickly. And by quickly, I mean, that's probably about a six month process. <laughs> it, this is, this, it is six months long, this long, for a number of reasons. But one of the main reasons is that it allows time for public participation in that process. So in service planning, we also have a lot of agencies have what we call transit standards to follow. We look at um, basic levels of service that, that provide good service. For example, an express bus maybe needs to have a minimum number of round trips, of four round trips in order to be considered even beginning to be decent service. We have express bus routes in Phoenix that have 25 or more round trips. So four is just a minimum. We have minimums for local service, like every 30 minutes or less, the bus needs to come by. The bus needs to run for 16 hours a day on weekdays, things like that. Uh, I won't go in, there, there's a lot of details to that. I won't go in any more into that, but the ones I just quoted to you are Phoenix standards. They vary widely by locality. What's good in Phoenix would never be considered good in Washington, DC. 
And what's good in Topeka, Kansas, where I started my career, would never be considered good in Phoenix, Arizona. So it's um, it, it's very much tailored to the community you live in. And I, oh, I'm trying to speed this up. I'm going over on my time. So when, when we tweak um, public transportation, the service of public transportation, we often look at where existing ridership is, where are product, productive routes. We are constantly looking at, oh, well, that business moved and they're now in a completely different location. So maybe we need to change the route to help that if that business was generating a lot of ridership. We, we focus on how we um, can positively impact the most people. And we use a lot of data points in our analysis population density, housing density, location of low and high income areas, car ownership, trip travel patterns. The, the list just goes on and on and on. And we have wonderful computer programs now that knit all these things together and put them in geographic information for us in layers. And, and, and I, the, our young planners today, they can do all this. They run circles around me. I just know they can. And so I just ask them for the data. Um, but it, we have great, uh, great ways of doing this now. Ultimately, the decisions for service and for capital projects are made by cities or other local jurisdictions, the transit board of direct, directors. These are policymakers and staff can, staff gives them input, the public gives them input, but ultimately those decisions are going to be made by those policymakers. And, um, so that's, a, in it, that's the planning process in a nutshell. It's lengthy, it's complex, it's data-driven, it's standards-driven, it's political, it's got a lot of public participation built into it. And um, I, I'm gonna pause there to see if there's any questions in particular about that section. That's just my first section of three. The other two are a little shorter. Any questions so far? Okay, I, I, okay hello? There she oh. is. I'm so sorry, you guys. This is Nat. I will, and I, I was will, muted. Okay. Go ahead, Nat. Okay, no problem. We do have some raised hands. Okay. Paul, you should be able to unmute and go ahead with your question. Yes, I have a question. Uh, what is the definition of, the definition of need? For example, I live in Texas. Arlington, Texas is in the, between Dallas and Fort Worth. It has 250,000 people and no public transportation whatsoever. Have Galveston Island, which probably has maybe sixty to seventy-five thousand people, and they have a transit system. And so, who, what is the definition of need, and who actually determines that, and how do they determine it? That is a great question. Um, Arlington is in the transit industry. Arlington is a bit of a poster child for, uh, um, you know, not have being a very large community with no transit service. The, the question of need is, is, it's a community value kind of thing. And it is, it starts with public participation. What has, what have members of the public told their elected officials that they want? Or what do the elected officials stand for that the people have voted into office? I mean, that's at the very, very base level to that question. But it is ultimately, it's a, it's a collective decision made on the part of the community as to what the community wants to spend community resources on. And it's very different in every, in every community. All right. Thank you, Paul. 
Sharon, you should be able to unmute and go ahead with your question. Hello, this is Sharon. I am in a community in Massachusetts, which has been experimenting with free fare uh, on the buses and, of, of course, on the paratransit uh, during the pandemic. And it's my understanding that this kind of free fare thing is really taking hold in parts of the country. And I'm <clears throat> curious to know if you've heard about this and if you think it's really sustainable. Thank you. Thanks for that question. Um, there is a lot of pros and cons on both sides of that question. Um, sometimes when, when we get into the funding, you'll, I'll, I'll explain how we collect very little fare um, in, in the picture of the overall cost of the system. But um, with, during the pandemic, there's been a lot of free fare and part of that reason has been to protect the bus operators. We've had people boarding and we've done this in Phoenix. People board through the back door so that the driver doesn't have to come face to face with every single person who gets on the bus. Because when you do that, you're like three feet apart from, from that driver face to face. Um, so that's been one reason why we've done it. Some systems have done it because they think it's the right thing to do. Um, my personal opinion, and this is just my personal opinion, that it devalues the, the public transit system when I don't have to invest anything in it, gives the perception that it also doesn't cost anything and it's also not worth anything. Um, it also encourages people who really aren't going anywhere to just ride around on it. Um, and then they make it an un, uh, an an undesirable place for other people to be potentially. So um, fares can be minimal. They can be mitigated in many ways. You can provide transit passes for people to ride, whether or not they pay, they might be free transit passes for certain groups of people, or there are ways to mitigate that and make transit accessible and available to all populations without making it a, literally a free fare. So. That's my personal opinion. Okay. And with that, I'm thinking maybe we should move on to the next session. So we have the next section of my presentation. So we have more time. And, yes. And just hold, hold the rest of the questions at this point. Okay. So I'm going to talk a little bit about how transit system is funded. We usually think funding in terms of capital funding and operating funding, the, the two sections of planning I just talked about. Um, the sources of funding for a transit system are that fare box, the fare that people pay, federal funding, state funding, regional funding, and local funding. I'm going to talk about each one of those a little bit. So um, focusing on federal funding for a moment, the Federal Transit Administration is part of the Department of Transportation, which is, has a secretary position reporting to the president. And it is, it's sister agencies in the Department of Transportation are like the Federal Highway Administration and the Federal Aviation Administration. These, these different ones, there's some others. These, come, these, along with Federal Transit Administration, make up the Department of Transportation. Federal funding almost always has to have a local match. So the, the federal government says, I'll help you pay for that, but I'm only going to pay for 50% or I'm only going to pay for 80% you have to show that you want this bad enough to come up with the rest of the money. Local matches come from the state, the regional, or the local funding. The federal funding is typically concentrated on capital investments, those things that are big, expensive, and last a long time. 
And um, in, but in, in large urban areas, you essentially are not allowed to spend federal funding on operations, on services. In urban areas that are less than 200,000 population and in rural areas, you can spend federal funding on operations. So that's something that maybe you can uh, do a little research about your own area later. Uh, major, pro major capital projects go through what we call the Capital Investment Grants Program. We call them new starts and we call them small starts. And the difference between a new start and a small start is, this, is the dollar size of the project. And, it's, and that benchmark is 300 million or more is a new start, 300 million or less is a small start. Um, there is an evaluation process that projects go through. They get a rating and then the Federal Transit Administration works with you and works with Congress and you get something funded. The point of all of this is that it's a long and complex process and we stay in touch with the Federal Transit Administration every step of the way. You might hear a number of grant programs thrown around, 5307, we call it Section 5307, that refers to the authorizing legislation that, that creates a program. Uh, 5307 is the Urbanized Area Formula Grant Program. 5309 is the Capital Investment Program. 5310 is the enhanced mobility of seniors and individuals with disabilities. 5311 is formula grants for rural areas. This list goes on and on and on. Don't get hung up on the numbers. That's for the transit staff to, to navigate and negotiate. What you need to know is that federal funding is usually used for capital investments unless you're in a small city or a rural area. And it is also it also will fund operations and in some specialized programs like travel training or service for seniors with people just people with disabilities. So that's in a nutshell what you need to know about federal funding. Um, other funding sources are used to match that federal funding. It, they are largely used to fund the operations of a system because we can't remember in most cases can't use federal funding to fund the operations. So we use state, regional, and local money to fund those things. When the service is on the street, fares cover about 25% of the operating cost. That's on average. It could be anywhere from 50%, like in a city like New York City, and I'm making that number up. I didn't research that number before I said it. Or it could be 10, 15%, this is also a policy decision made on the part of your elected officials, what they want that formula to look like. Um, oftentimes paratransit services, the fare will pay for about 5% of the cost of providing that service. So, but the point here is that no trans, uh, that the fare box does not cover the cost of the service. Transit gets criticized for this all the time. Why are we subsidizing people's transportation when, you know, just in that case? The answer to that question is there is no form of transportation that pays for itself. I, you know, the last time a car drove down the freeway, I don't think it stopped unless it was toll road. I don't think it stopped and put money in a, in a uh, bucket anywhere to pay for the cost of that road. Transportation is subsidized in all of its forms. So the remaining cost of, the, the, of funding transportation is usually provided by a mix of the local, regional, and state funding. 
in a, and in, in a few cases, the federal funding, I don't wanna leave that out, but uh, we tend to leave it out in our minds. <laughs> um, so public funds can come from in the form of dedicated sales tax, a property tax, a gas tax, a hotel occupancy tax, lottery funds, general funds, every local area makes a different decision about how they wanna fund their different services. Usually there is a ballot measure and election of the people to secure the local funding for transit um, in whatever form that it's being uh, collected. Sometimes a transit tax is bundled with other things like there might be a, an election for a transportation tax, which is gonna fund roads and freeways and public transit. Or there might be a quality of life tax that's up for election that's gonna fund parks and libraries and transit. So these, it gets bundled in with other things. And one reason for doing that is because usually everybody wants something on the list. And so there's a higher probability that people are gonna vote yes in favor of, of such a tax. Um, regional funding is collected usually on a county-wide basis, possibly a, a multiple multi-county-wide level. Funds are clearly collected in a city or a town and state funds would be collected statewide. So it's a good idea to become familiar with how this process works in your community because it's different everywhere. The levels of funding for transit vary widely. They can be very high, they can be very low, and they correspond with the amount of transit that's available in your community. If the community invests in public transit, there's a lot of it, and the, and the reverse is true. Evidence does show that the more transit you put out, the more people will use it. If you have very, very limited amounts of transit, it doesn't serve anybody very well, and nobody uses it. If you have very high levels of transit, then it serves a lot of people, it gets them where they need to go, and more people use it. <clears throat> um, so the fight for transit funding is constant. And I just wanna throw in that it is not always completely locally influenced. We have seen recently, there are national groups that will come in to a community and try to influence the way a local election is going to go about public transit and um, not always for the better. So sometimes we're not only trying to make the case just in our community, but we're also trying to fight outside sources with that sometimes have a lot of money coming in and trying to dictate what happens in our community where they don't even live. Um, Usually taxes for transit have to be renewed once every 20 years, every 30 years, something like that. And in the tax renewals, whether they be new or, or renewals, there's a lot of opportunity for advocacy. So if there is an election for transportation funding going on in your community, I would urge you to educate yourself on the issues and advocate accordingly. So that's the end of my second session. Let's take a couple questions about that. All right, we're going to actually go to Sean. Um, Sean, if you could please unmute yourself. So <clears throat> I guess where I'm thinking about my mind still hasn't quite gone from your last topic is one of the problems we're seeing with free transit during the pandemic, there's a couple. One is that drivers are not opening the front door of the bus so that people with disabilities know which bus it is so that the automatic announcer can do that. And I guess the second point I would make is 
you know, yet you said, you know, the fare box is only a small percent of that. Like, I wish there, I don't, I don't know. I wish there was a way I could give them money apart from just handing it to them because I feel like they need it. It's, I don't feel like it's been, it's going to bite us in the long run. And so I just, I guess I'm frustrated because I don't understand what the motivation was for doing it entirely. <clears throat> so I know it's not quite a question, but That's I a, Yeah, great observation. And, and I'm going to actually um, bring that up with our operations folks. I, I hadn't thought about um, people not knowing which bus it is because the driver doesn't open the door. That's, that's a great observation. Um, as far as whether or not the money gets collected, thank, thank you for, for wanting to pay your fare. Um, we actually got a huge amount of money uh, because of COVID-19. The federal government infused us with enough money to, um, to not require us to make major changes in our budgets and our um, and therefore our operation of service for about the next 12 months. <laughs> so that was a huge relief. Um, we are, we're definitely hurting from lack of ridership and the loss of fares is definitely an issue, but know that we, we have been propped up by the federal government to get through this time so that we're not doing it um, we're, so that we're doing it, we, we, we refer to it as doing it with a scalpel instead of with a meat cleaver. Um, we're going to be, the, you will see cha changes probably in your local transit system, but we're going to take some time, get good public input, and make those in a very rational way. Okay, and our next question is from Jamaica. Well, Jamaica's unmuting um, something, this is Sheila again, that I neglected to uh, <laughs> announce at the beginning when I was so flustered. Um, we have downloadable documents, um, some from Carol and some from many of other, our other presenters up on acbconvention.org under the downloadable document section. Now, Jamaica, you have the floor, sorry. Yes, um, my question is about um, do we ask for transit funding if we are doing a, a nonprofit um, volunteer transportation program? That is, you can. Um, the 5310 program that I mentioned for um, people, for seniors and people with disabilities, that's, that's uh, its purpose is to increase mobility for those populations. That money is available to nonprofit organizations. So you might look into that a little bit. And on the handout that is available to you, I've put some links to some um, various websites to provide more information. And one of the links on there is a link to, to the Federal Transit Administration's webpage and the grant programs that they have. And you can get more information about specific programs on that page. Okay, our next question is um, from Michael Byington. Thank you very much. Uh, Carol, I'm coming from your old stomping grounds of uh, Topeka, Kansas. Nice. And uh, so you know something about the area that I'm talking about. My question is that uh, a few years ago, we had a transit situation where they were telling us in public hearings, 
that uh, capital funds would be spent to buy hordes of new buses and uh, build new shelters, but that operating funds were really low and that they were going to reduce a lot of routes from every half hour headway to every hour headway and some things that were really affecting the effectiveness of the transit system. Now, during your presentation, what I heard you saying was that for cities under 200,000, which would include us, there, there can be some commingling of uh, the capital improvement funds and the operating funds. So did they miss a bet and mm. did we miss a bet as advocates in terms of dealing with that situation? Interesting question. And I, I perhaps misspoke a little bit when I said cities under 200,000. They look at metropolitan areas and the population of the metropolitan area. So that's going to be a little bit bigger than just the city. And so without looking up, doing some research, I can't specifically answer that question. But my guess is that probably your metropolitan area is bigger than 200,000. Okay. Our next question yep. is from Ann Davis. Okay. Hello. This is Annie. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, great. Um, I don't know if my question is directly related to funding, but it is a concern that I've had for years having been having used paratransit frequently. I've noticed that uh, in some areas it doesn't go. And it's really been a concern because there like certain um, jobs in the Cincinnati area are like in Mason, for instance. And I've noticed that it's there are limited times to which the um, public bus will go out there and the paratransit doesn't go out there at all. I'm just curious as to what they base that on because it just seems to me that that would be an area that has a greater need. If this, if this is wrong, could I just jump in real quickly? Cause we're actually going to go to the regulatory conversation with our next speaker. Um, and we actually have a, an entire session on Tuesday on this particular topic of paratransit. Um, because what it's a very, very good question. Um, and mm. it's one we're going to spend a little bit more time on as we go. Um, if that's okay with you, um, the other thing I'd like to do just real quickly before Carol, you jump back in is I wanted to talk about 5310 just for a minute. Um, and I wanted to make sure, um, that there's clarity around an issue, Carol, that you alluded yeah. to, um, yeah, Ron, Ron in, is a much better expert on 5310 than me. Uh, back <laughs> in my days at Valley Metro, I got to play around in the 5310 sandbox. And it's uh, the first thing I want to tell you is that it is, it is a very small sandbox. So uh, 5310 is a program. It is for seniors and people with disabilities. It is for enhanced mobility. By mm -hmm. definition, uh, 5310 is not for ADA paratransit. It is for services that are supposed to be in addition to or to enhance uh, services for seniors and people with disabilities. And by definition, it is designed to be for agencies um, there is a, at least in, in most cases, public transit agencies are able to apply for the funds, but there is a preference within the funding for, um, for other organizations, especially nonprofits who are providing service that um, basically benefits seniors and people with disabilities over and above paratransit. So paratransit, um, in case you're wondering, just like bus service, there is no federal funding. Um, that is dedicated to complementary ADA paratransit service unless you are in a community uh, that is smaller than um, 
200,000, metropolitan area is smaller than 200,000. And even there, the funding is extraordinarily limited. So um, when you think about any kind of transportation, whether it's public transit or paratransit, there is no set aside funding for the operation of those services. Um, so when you think of 5310, think of it as A, small, and B, um, sort of a, uh, I won't call it a set aside, but it's really, it's really designated more and intended more for um, agencies, social service agencies that are providing transportation uh, enhancements for seniors and people with disabilities. Okay. Thanks, Ron, for that clarification. I'm going to go on to my third section now um, and just make sure we get through everything and then take questions for the remaining time. So my third section is who are the players and the decision makers and how can you get involved? Uh, the players that you need to pay attention to are at all of those various levels that we just talked about the funds. It's the follow the money kind of uh, analogy. So at the federal level, um, we have the budgeting process that goes on in Congress with the administration as a player in that. We have transportation authorizing legislation, which is a multi-year um, piece of legislation that allows transportation programs to exist, all those 53 numbers that I quoted earlier. It creates the structure of those authorized programs. It does not give any money. Every year there is a transportation appropriations process that puts money in the buckets that are created by the authorizing legislation. So that is a fight that goes on every year between Congress and the administration and the different political parties. And if you can influence that by letting your elected officials know how you feel about how transportation is funded. Uh, at the state level, the players are a very similar to the federal level. They are the legislators of your state. They are the staff members of your state department of transportation. Um, and even in states, there are a very, there's a handful of states, Arizona being one, that provides no state level funding for public transportation. But even in states where there is no funding for public transportation, the state is very frequently the creator of the regional transportation authorities giving that transportation authority the right to exist. And it also, the, the state legislature will dictate the rules under which they can operate. So it's a good idea to understand your state's role, even if they're not providing any money for public transportation. At the regional level, you have your transit boards of directors. Now a transit board of directors can be made up of elected officials um, that are appointed to those roles. So the, um, uh, like the way the Phoenix Transit Board is set up, the mayor of each city in our, in our area, in our service area, has a seat on the transit board. So we actually have 19 board members at this point. Um, if, if, so it is an elected official, but it's a particular elected official, it's the mayor. Or the mayor can appoint somebody, another councilman to, to, to fill that seat if he or she wishes to. A transit board of directors can also be citizens who are appointed by elected officials. Um, or they can also be people who are directly elected by the people to the office of transit board of director. 
And there's probably some other way it can be structured that I haven't mentioned, um, but just it's different in every community and you need to understand how your transit board of directors is created and who those people are. Also the transit authority staff members, that's where I work. I'm a transit authority staff member. And we're generally the people who are at all those public meetings or at those online meetings to listen to what the public has to say and to process that into what we are recommending to the board of directors. So interacting with your transit, uh, transit staff members is also important. Uh, the, the, there's a metropolitan planning organization um, in every community that is made up of the governments of the, the region. And I failed to mention them earlier, but that is typically where this regional transportation plan is created and, and, and approved. So they are the long range planning people. We work together at the Transit Authority. We work with our counterparts, uh, staff members at the Metropolitan Planning Organization literally every day. Um, but it's a good idea to understand who those people are. They, they also have a board, a governing board that's made up of mayors or council people from the region. And then you're, you'll will typically also have a county transportation department that has its own set of players as well. And then you have local players, the city officials, your council members, your mayors, those sorts of folks, and the city staff also are um, influencing the elected officials because they are providing the information that the elected officials are relying on to make policy decisions. And then at the community level, there are a myriad of, of groups and um, communities of people that can be part of this process. There are neighborhood associations, there are community gathering places, places of worship, community centers, businesses who have a stake in what we do, citizens, every single person out there, voters, developers who have an interest in how land is being used and how land is, is um, being served by public, by transportation. There are special interest groups who might have an interest in serving people with disabilities, in preserving the environment, in historic preservations. So all of these people come to the table and have a voice in this process. So how can you participate in some of this activity? We have public meetings for projects and service planning all the time. We have transit board meetings. They usually meet once a month. They are open to the public uh, nationwide. I can't think of a single transit board meeting that wouldn't be open to the public. City council meetings likewise. Metropolitan planning organizations also open to the public neighborhood associations. You can be an active member of your neighborhood association. You might have a special interest advocacy group um, that, that is um, something you wanna participate in. You can become a member of a citizens transportation advisory group or a local transportation commission. Here in this metropolitan area in Phoenix, we every city has a local transportation commission which is made up of members of that city that feed information into city council and it all filters up and eventually influences what we do. We also have a citizens, uh, a, sorry, an accessibility advisory group at Valley Metro and many of your transit authorities might have similar groups. So that might be something that, that, that you could have a voice in. 
There are surveys to participate in. Uh, you can get involved in elections and transit-related ballot measures. You can follow us on electronic media. You can input your thoughts and what we're doing, watch our websites. And I wanna just make a mention of what COVID-19 has done for public participation. I mean, if there's one good thing that has come out of COVID-19, it has been that we are light years moved forward in our public participation. We have gone online. We have found that participation in our public process has actually gone up because now more convenient for people to join our meetings and have their voices heard. I personally don't think we will ever go back to 100% the way it was. We used to be told that we had to meet in person because people didn't know how to get online. We would be disenfranchising people. People didn't have the equipment, this kind of stuff. In the last three, four months, I think the population as a whole has gone light years into the future about being connected and being communicated online. There will always be people who don't have the equipment or the resources to get online. We will always, at, you know, in the future, not right now, but we will always have some level of in-person meetings. But I think our use of online participation, surveying, watching recorded webinars, because I couldn't be at the webinar at the time that it happened, I think that will never go away. It will never go back to the way it was. So if I could summarize that a little bit, um, learn the, the process in your community and participate in it. Organize around what you want and know why you want it so that you can communicate that to your decision makers and just become part of the process. And in doing so, you, you'll need to discover who your local public transit provider is, how it's governed, how it's funded. They probably have a website, find it and explore it. You need to know who represents you on the transit board of directors, who your metropolitan planning organization is and who represents you there, who your city council members are, who your state legislators are, your federal legislators. And you need to learn, just be aware of your rights to participate in the public process. And it sounds like Ron's got more in store for you on that um, in, as this conference goes forward. So that is the end of the, the formal notes that I have. So I'd be happy to, to take questions during whatever time the moderators say I have left. We are, we are really running close on time. So I'm thinking that maybe two questions Okay. Um, before we take those questions, um, I really want to thank you, Carol, for an excellent presentation. All of your information was so clear. Um, you're very compelling, reminding people about the importance to get involved in these things. And you have been just the best start to our program offerings we, we could have hoped for. So thank, thank you, you so very much. And now, and I am honored questions. to be here, by the way. I am I'm, I'm just thrilled that Ron thought of me to do this. So I, I thank him for his confidence in me. Okay, Sheila, I'm here, it's Cindy, and um, Andy can talk. Yeah, this is, I guess, more of a question for the moderators, but is this, is this gonna be um, also recorded as one of the podcasts, or? <clears throat> it's, it's currently on ACB radio, and I'm sure you'll be able to access it later. Okay, all right, thanks. Julie, you can go next. Hi, thank you for speaking out on the subject. Um, I'm Julie, and I'm in a Tacoma suburb. 
And a couple years, quite a number of years ago, we had our local transit due to sales tax revenue dropping. Um, I noticed as I went to the local meetings, we had tax voters that are, are apprehensive about voting us back into the transit voting district. What is your advice on what we can do when we start doing this on getting voters to want to pay that three extra cents for every $10 so that we can get to work? Have you used language in your experience that's really effective with voters? Hmm. There are, there, there are companies out there who specialize in this, um, in running transit campaigns and, and messaging. I, I, I would say, I mean, whether or not you go with a paid professional or just a local advocate who understands, I think you, you need a professional who can um, help message the, the message. Um, but, I, but we need to make people understand the value of transit, what it does for the economy, what it does for employment, and um, relative to the amount that they have to pay for it, it's a great return on investment. I think that's the basic message that we have to get people to understand. Um, if you look at, uh, there's a website on, uh, in my resources section of my handout that is, there's one for the, the federal, uh, sorry, the American Public Transportation Association and also the Community Transportation Association of America. Uh, the American Public Transportation Association, APTA it's called, it tends to focus on more urbanized areas and the Community Transportation Association of America tends to focus on smaller cities and rural areas just so you kind of know the difference. Both of those websites have sections on advocacy and getting the message out with a lot of great resources that might be helpful. Hey, Carol. And I'm, I'm afraid we're gonna have to leave it there. We need to um, take a short break and let's all be back here on the hour. And again, thank you so much, Carol. I know everybody got a lot out of this. So we'll see everybody back here thank at you. 3 p.m. Thanks. On through the break, um, I want to just tout something that one of Carol's team members did. Um, Valley Metro, uh, in an effort to build support um, for um, some of the transit initiatives here, developed a report called the Quality of Life Report, mm -hmm. uh, which did a super job of quantifying um, the impacts of public transit on everything from, and I don't remember all of the metrics, but health was part of the conversation. Uh, there were some economics, uh, you know, kinds of things. And, um, you know, maybe we can post a link uh, to that report. It's obviously specific to this community, but it's, it's a good example of the kinds of, of analysis that can be done in a community to quantify the value of transit within a given community. That, yeah, great point, Ron. And um, if I could just add to that, that report, it was, a, it was a very well done report by some very smart young planners. Um, it focused on our light rail line only. And um, so it only looks at the advantages or you know, what's provided to the community by, light, by that particular light rail line. But we are it, right now in the process of updating that report. It's, been, it's gonna be about four years old by the time we get it updated. And <laughs> one of the objectives of the update is to include 
bus. And when you include bus on all the bus route lines, you're also then including the paratransit service area, which goes along with the with the bus yeah. route lines. So uh, yeah, great point, Ron, thanks. And I know you're in a break, but you do have one raised hand. I don't know if you go, wanna- Go for it. Do that. You might I'm as fine. well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right, Sheila, you can unmute. This, this is the equivalent of the speaker hanging around up front. Why not? In the room. You know, they're, they're coming up to the front table to ask you a question, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Sheila. I'm here. Um, thank you. Um, my name is Sheila Gunn I'm from Oakland, California. And um, one of the problems that we have is that our regional uh, area has 28 transit agencies in it, it's like herding cats. And the level of accessibility in some ways is good, but in many ways is atrocious. And I would like to force our regional transit agency, our, our, our mm -hmm. COG, our Council of Governments, mm -hmm. to, um, to make the money follow accessibility or accessibility follow the money or something. Um, and it's, it's very difficult we've always struggled for ops money. Every transit system does, but now with COVID-19 only 10 people per bus, essential trips only on paratransit. And I, you know, people aren't riding rails. I mean, some are, but it's, it's just, it's really bad out here. And, and, and I'd like to see our card system be used to pay fares, but the card system, is not accessible in many ways, the application process and everything. I would, um, Ron, I would hope that this, those things are covered later and, and, and how to get uh, recalcitrant agencies that are responsible for getting the money through to get it where it needs to go in the right ways. I'm sorry, that took me forever. Ron, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I was just pondering. I'm thinking the you might have a better response to that than I do. It's it's so, a challenge. So yeah, Sheila and I'm familiar with the uh, Bay Area. I've spent a little time there, and you are correct. Um, it is like the Balkans, um, like after World War One. I. I mean, it's crazy. So what I would say is is let's have that conversation either um, in the urban. If you're going to participate in the urban um, session tomorrow. Um, or uh, in the conversation on Wednesday when we talk about the coalition building at the community level. Um, the Bay Area is its own case. Okay, and Darian um, had had her hand up earlier and took it down when they said no questions. So, Darian, you should be able to Am unmute. I unmuted? Yeah, you are, hon. Oh, good. Okay, so I, I wanted to um, go back and ask about um, public comment and um, what can be done when the transit system, the paratransit system does not um, provide adequate notice of public hearings um, to the blind community? We had a situation um, a few months ago in Portland, Oregon, where, well, where we were able to uh, have an early return, like in my case, I'm a therapist. If I had a bunch of no-shows or cancellations, I used to be able to say my day has ended early. Um, when can can you get me home earlier? Um, 
And they said they ended that right, which they said was a privilege, not a right. And they said it wasn't a policy that they provided that. Um, but they had provided it for 25 or 30 years or more in my whole time of using the system. And so when we started inquiring about it, they said that was just a, a privilege that they were providing. And a lawyer we consulted said that after a certain amount of time, something that is maybe not policy, but practice regularly becomes presumptive policy. So I guess how, my question is, they said they sent letters to everyone who used the will call process in the past year, but everybody in the room at that presentation who was blind hadn't gotten that letter. Um, can we reverse, how can we reverse the decision of an entity when they don't, uh, when we feel they don't give appropriate pu public hearing notice? And how do you um, talk to them about what may seem like- Need to be quick, Darian, it's almost time to policy. start again. That's my question. Uh, I'm going to just jump in because Please it's going to come up in the paratransit conversation on when on Tuesday afternoon. Um, so um, bring this question. Um, I, I'm actually I'm moderating that session and I will actually cover this topic directly. And I thank you for that question, Darian. It's really important. And a lot of people yes. are, are going through situations like that. But we are going to have other sections where we, we talk about and I feel like I'm being a, a hair pushy, but we're 15 minutes behind. And if we start right now on our next session, um, we will only be 15 minutes behind. It won't get worse. So um, we are now going to hear about the impact of federal laws and regulations on the accessibility of transportation and infrastructure projects. And the presenter is our very own Christopher Bell. He's a retired disability rights attorney and he worked on actually drafting the Americans with Disabilities Act. Christopher has a lot of great experience and information. He's from Pittsburgh, North Carolina. So take it away, Chris. You can do questions whenever you like and um, you have 45 minutes. I will add that Christopher has created an excellent reference document, which is up on acbconvention.org in the downloadable documents section. So please welcome Christopher Bell. Um, okay, so uh, thanks very much. And I'm gonna talk about the uh, federal role uh, and I'm gonna build a little bit on what uh, Carol had to say. Um, first of all, because this is a political issue, uh, we need to follow the uh, advice of Claire and Clark when it comes to federal stuff and transportation. The uh, federal uh, authorization for funding uh, surface transportation and mass transportation will expire in September, and it'll be important for us to be involved in uh, lobbying on that so we can get some things that we need. Uh, secondly, if we wanna be effective at the affiliate level, then we need to find people that are passionate about transportation, uh, including uh, pedestrian facilities, because as you've learned from Carol, this is pretty complicated stuff, and you need somebody that really is willing to dig into the weeds 
and attend the meetings and meet the people. And that's the only way you can be effective. Now, fortunately, all this is not po completely political because we probably wouldn't have uh, much uh, access if it was because under the ADA, of course, we uh, have an obligation that if we're going to buy buses for a transit agency, they have to be accessible. We have, if we have a fixed route, we have to have complementary paratransit. And to the extent we have pedestrian facilities, uh, we have to uh, provide uh, some degree of pedestrian access. So all of that uh, comes with the ADA, uh, which was our great political accomplishment. So I'm going to uh, talk about the federal issues uh, through a scenario. I'm not going to mention uh, more of what Carol said in terms of Federal Transit Administration, the Federal Highway Administration. Um, and we have one other standard setting body, which is the United States Access Board. Um, but in this scenario, uh, I'm going to use to describe some of the federal issues. Um, imagine that you have a doctor's appointment and uh, it's in two days. And so you're going to take paratransit from work to get there. And it's at three o'clock. So you call up the paratransit operator and you tell that person that you have a three o'clock doctor's appointment. When do you need to get picked up? And so they give you time and uh, you're happy because the paratransit arrives uh, only 15 minutes after your pickup time, which is in the 30 minute window. So you get on and all that is good. And then you find out that there are five other riders on that paratransit van and uh, you're gonna be the last one off. This is not good news because even though you're only five miles away from the doctor's office, the paratransit runs uh, around and around different places and you end up being 45 minutes late for your doctor's appointment. You'll go in, they say, gee, I'm sorry, you're too late. You'll have to reschedule. And can you please make a greater effort next time to be on time for your appointment? So you're pretty frustrated. Uh, and so now you're going to take a fixed route bus home. So you get out of the doctor's office and you start looking for a bus stop. And you hear some people uh, talking near a curb and you think, well, maybe that's the bus stop and son of a gun it is. And uh, it happens to be the right bus stop. So you get on the uh, bus, which is the one you want, because it's announced when the door is open. And you tell the driver that uh, you need to get off at Johnson Street to transfer. And uh, so the driver says, great. And you go sit down. And gee, isn't it nice? The bus has an automatic stop announcement. And so you sit back <clears throat> and you listen for your stops. And unfortunately, you don't hear Johnson Street because the driver forgets to tell you. So when you realize you passed your stop, uh, you realize you have to get off the bus and go to the other side of the street, catch a bus going the other direction so you can get down to Johnson Street. Now you get off the bus and you discover <clears throat> that the sidewalk is blocked. And it's blocked because they're doing construction. They're building a building and so, uh, for safety reasons, they've blocked the sidewalk. And you've got your cane and you're trying to figure out where the heck it is you go if you can't be on the sidewalk. And uh, there are parked cars along the, uh, along the block sidewalk and you're tapping in amongst the cars and it's really kind of a mess. But you finally make it to a sidewalk that's open and you cross the other side of the street. You get the bus going 
back to Johnson Street. And this time you driver calls in at your stop and you get off and you catch your bus um, going home and all that's good. Um, but then you realize you have to cross this four lane uh, street with traffic moving in both lanes. And it's not something you usually cross. So you wait at the, uh, at the corner and uh, you're listening for your parallel traffic surge. Um, and, uh, you know, you notice that some sighted people are, are crossing uh, not based on what it would appear to be the parallel traffic. Um, and just when you hear the parallel, parallel traffic surge, you uh, step out and you realize that cars are turning left across the intersection that you were just about to cross. So um, this is a problem and you can't quite figure out when it is you're supposed to be able to cross. So now, how do we analyze these problems? Um, when it comes to fixed route bus systems and complementary paratransit, they happen to be highly regulated by the Federal Transit Administration. And not only are there regulations, but they issued what they call an ADA circular, which uh, pulls together their regulations and their uh, other policy uh, actions which they've adopted and as a result of their experience. So that's the good news. There is this ADA circular. The bad news is, for some reason, they've no longer posted it on the Federal Transit Administration website. Um, and so it's not easy to get. Um, but uh, I did get it. Uh, and I have in, in my materials at least Chapter 8, with, which is uh, about complementary paratransit. I don't have the whole document because it's 300-some pages. Um, <clears throat> Now, let's look at the uh, paratransit issue. Okay, so uh, the paratransit picked our rider up within the 30-minute window, so all that is good. I've complied with that. Unfortunately, uh, it was a two-hour ride, and that is way too long, particularly for a five-mile run. And so the Federal Transit Administration uh, does have uh, requirements that uh, the time that a paratransit has to deliver somebody is going to be based in part on the distance and in part on how long it would take the person to travel on the fixed route system. So clearly, uh, this is a violation. Um, and anytime you have a violation uh, of the Federal Transit Administration's regulations for paratransit, you can make a complaint to the, fair, the uh, Federal Transit Administration. And um, that's one way when somebody asked about uh, getting uh, uh, input into uh, actions where the agency has stopped writing will calls, um, you know, you would try to make a complaint to the Federal Transit Administration and use that uh, as political leverage or otherwise to try to get your will call uh, issue restored. But will call is not actually uh, required under the paratransit regs. They're correct about that. Um, now, as to the ride on the fixed route bus, um, yes, uh, the driver announces the bus when it arrived. This is all good. And they have the automatic stop announcements, and this is all good. Um, and uh, they're required to make announcements at major intersections and where there are connecting routes, but they're also required 
to uh, make an announcement that's requested by a writer, and that did not happen here. So that's a violation. Now, unfortunately, uh, these kind of violations, uh, <clears throat> you, can, uh, you can complain to the local transit agency in uh, Minneapolis, where my wife and I used to live, uh, there was a union contract and these kinds of violations where the driver doesn't announce your stop um, aren't uh, considered sufficiently uh, disciplinary. So it's a little hard to get that enforced often. Now, um, when we talk about getting off and you find that the sidewalk is blocked, um, this is a uh, not uncommon problem with construction. And here, um, the Manual on Uniform Traffic Control Devices, which is issued by the Federal Highway Administration, to which I have a link in my materials, uh, requires that there be an alternate accessible pedestrian route provided, and there has to be signage. Now, there are lots of companies out there that can provide um, audible signage, um, but to my knowledge, audible signage isn't yet required. But at any rate, there should be some way of telling the blind person uh, where the accessible alternate route is, and it has to be cane detectable. In other words, I can't just put up a ribbon, and you know your cane goes under it. You don't know it's uh, you don't know it's there. Um, in situations where the blockage of the sidewalk is only going to be short term, it's sufficient if they have a construction worker that uh, sees and, and guides you through. Um, but uh, otherwise, they need to do a better job of providing uh, notice and an actual alternate accessible pedestrian route, lest you be run over. Right. Now, uh, let's talk about what happened when our uh, passenger uh, gets out of the bus and goes and comes to this four-lane road and is trying to figure out uh, when, by listening to parallel traffic, uh, he or she can cross. And remember I said that uh, the other pedestrians seem to be uh, crossing uh, without uh, the apparent appropriate uh, traffic surge or signalization. And probably what that person is confronting is called a leading pedestrian interval. And leading pedestrian intervals are becoming quite common. And they're a way of reducing uh, automobile uh, accidents and pedestrians. And essentially what a leading pedestrian interval does is it gives the walk signal uh, at least three and sometimes up to seven seconds before the turning traffic is released to come across the intersection. And the reason for that is that in that extra period of time to walk, uh, the pedestrian is gonna get out in the middle of the intersection and be more visible by the turning cars who will then uh, hopefully uh, notice that person and not turn uh, into that person's path. So that's the leading pedestrian interval. The great problem for us, of course, is that the walk sign for a leading pedestrian interval is not audible. So while we're standing on the corner waiting for parallel traffic to go, uh, the sighted people see this leading pedestrian interval walk sign and they're off, but we don't know about it. So uh, we have a resolution uh, passed at the last annual convention uh, that um, 
seeks to require uh, accessible pedestrian signals uh, to be installed where there's a leading pedestrian interval so we can get notice of this. And uh, I would refer you to that. Let me say something else about accessible pedestrian signals. Accessible pedestrian signals uh, are not required uh, and that's unlike, for example, curb ramps, which the ADA does require to be installed at every intersection. The reason they're not required is partly because the National Federation of the Blind has opposed them. Um, but um, you can request them. You can request an intersection have accessible pedestrian signals. And in addition, uh, the United States Access Board uh, has draft uh, what they call public rights of way guidelines. And that's a fancy way of saying uh, streets, intersections, sidewalks, and traffic lights. Um, so that draft um, also doesn't require it, except uh, that they do say that if the traffic light is going to be replaced, so, you know, let's say they're redoing the sidewalk and they're taking out all the poles and then they're fix the sidewalk and they're going to put it in a traffic light, that new traffic light is supposed to have an accessible pedestrian signal. Or if they're replacing the signal head or the guts of the pedestrian signal that's not accessible, they're supposed to install an accessible pedestrian signal. So those draft guidelines were issued in 2011 and they're deemed best practice. So, um, it's a little frustrating with the public rights away guidelines because they started working on them when I was 40 years old and I am now 69. Uh, so, uh, you know, this is not going to happen maybe in my lifetime. I hope it happens in your lifetime. And even if they issue the guidelines, um, they're not legal standards until the United States Department of Justice adopts them as such. And that can take, you know, the last time they issued guidelines that Justice Department adopted, that took six years. So um, this is not a speedy process. Okay, that's the guts of my presentation. I'll be happy to take questions. Okay. Um, it is Alt-Y if you're on the PC to raise your hand, Option-Y if you're on a Mac. And uh, you can use star nine if you're on a phone. And we are going to go to Margarita. Hello. Um, I work, I'm a vocational rehab teacher here in San Angelo, Texas. And I work with Robert Karch, who is the um, signals. And you were saying about accessible signals. We yes. work together, and what he has done is he now has on the city website, uh, you can click on it, and you can get a link of all audible signals that the city takes care of. So uh, this was at the request of one of my consumers, because he, he go for his business, goes from place to place, used, requested it from me, and... Now it's open to everybody. So it's the San Angelo, Texas uh, Light Signal. Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, his, you have a question? Yes. Do we have 
is there a way to, when we're doing this, to have the state also com- uh, connect with the city? Because when we tried, they said no. So I'm sorry, I, I don't understand your question about the state connecting to the city. The TxDOT has uh, certain audible signals, uh, accessible signals, and we're trying to get it on that same listing so that uh, the people would know where they are. It's and a great idea, but there's no, there's, no ob- there's, there's, there's no obligation. But you're right, okay. there are, are intersections where, uh, in some intersections are partly county roads, partly uh, state roads, et cetera. Um, but no, there's no way to force the state to do that other than political pressure. Next question. Hey, Chris, you can unmute. Okay. My question is, um, when you brought up the issue of um, when new signals are, are put in, that it's, I guess, highly suggested that they become accessible. My yeah, question the best is, practice is they're supposed to put in uh, accessible pedestrian signals at that point. Right. But, but since LPIs are sort of like a new kid on the block, that obviously would, would have been put in recently. And nobody took account of that. Well, that LP, an, LP, an LPI is not uh, considered replacing a signal. That's a that's a computer adjustment uh, in the uh, the non-accessible pedestrian signal. So that that's not considered the installation uh, of a new signal, nor uh, is it the installation of a signal head. So it's that's just a computer adjustment. Bob is unmuted. So go ahead, Bob. Yeah. So my question has to do with. Um, with bus announcements, what are the rules, um, if any, uh, regarding um, regarding automatic announcements, both within the bus and uh, on the stops? Because the local transit agency up here, um, if there is only one bus that runs along a particular route and open and door opens, that that will not automatically be announced nor will every stop be automatically announced. They'll announce, they'll announce the major ones, but they won't announce every single stop. What are the rules on that? Okay, when the, when the bus stops, the driver is obligated to open the door and announce what the bus number is and what its destination is, you know, its endpoint, so that if you're standing outside trying to figure out whether that's the bus you want to take, you can learn that. And uh, I guess some automatic bus announcements uh, can be heard outside, but regardless of, of whether they have them, the bus driver's got to announce it if uh, it's not uh, to be heard outside. In terms of once you're on the bus, the automatic bus announcements are not required to announce every bus stop. They're only required to announce major intervals, uh, major intersections, I mean, and those intersections where they're connecting to other major bus routes. But they're also required to announce if somebody's made a request to be told when a particular stop is. But they don't have to announce every stop. All right. Edward, it looks like you're unmuted. Yes, I have a question. I'm really frustrated. I'm a bulk rehab counselor in California. And uh, quite a few times I've received people who want services from me who happened to lose their vision, um, they, they didn't realize they'd have the visual impairment that all their life and it developed or some accident happens. But anyhow, 
we were trying to get them lined up with the access service, the paratransit services. And the ADA states that you have to be three quarters, less than three quarters of a mile nearest the nearest fixed belt, fixed route bus. The problem is three quarters of a mile is really a short distance. That ADA regulation should be at least a mile, a mile and a half, because people don't know, you know, five or 10 years in the, in the future, especially with older pe- people getting older, they're losing their vision and three quarters of miles too short of a distance to uh, have a, that regulation set. Uh, we need to do a resolution is what I'm saying, maybe. Okay, well, uh, that would require uh, uh, a change in, in federal law. There are a number of uh, jurisdictions, local jurisdictions that have chosen uh, not to limit the paratransit uh, service to three quarters of a mile, uh, and many have doubled that to a mile and a half. But even then, of course, if you don't realize that you're going to need uh, complementary paratransit uh, later in life, and you know you're not necessarily thinking about that when you go to rent an apartment or buy a house. So yes, it's a problem. I hey, agree. Paul. Yes, I I have a question. Um, your scenario. This doesn't happen to me because I'm paying close attention to what I'm doing on the buses and, and I have GPS to tell me where I'm going. So, But suppose you ask a driver to drop you off at a stop and the driver misses your stop and takes you past that. Can you get to compel the driver to help you across the street to get you to the nearest bus stop? Uh, I don't think so because um, the, the driver is responsible for the safety of everybody in that bus. Um, and I'm not sure that they would be allowed to actually leave the bus and uh, wait for a light and walk somebody across. Now, if we were talking about para, uh, if we were talking about paratransit, um, that I'd bring up at the session because there is some understanding. If, for example, you have curb to curb service on paratransit, not all paratransit is door to door. So, if you have curb to curb paratransit and there's a blockage. Uh, for the person needing the paratransit to get to where they need to go, then there is some obligation for the bus driver of the paratransit service to help person get to their destination. Um, but talk to talk to Ron about that in the paratransit uh, session because he may have better ideas than I do on that. Yep, just a real quick addition, um, Chris. This is Ron. Just for the addition. First off, um, I would I would say that you are unassuredly correct. Um, no question that drivers, um, for the most part, not only are they not probably going to walk a person across the street, they're probably not permitted to uh, because of the uh, the safety of the bus, the fact that it's a vehicle in operation with people on it, engine running, etc. cetera. Uh, with regard to paratransit, we're going to talk about the concept of origin to destination. Um, and the FTA has ruled repeatedly that curb-to-curb service is legal, but it is not legal if a person requires door-to-door service. And we will talk about that. Okay. Are you still good for questions? Sure. Okay. Michael, you can unmute. Michael Thank Byington. Thank you very much. There good you are. Your, good <laughs> to hear your voice, Chris. And uh, hey, Michael. hello to for your wife, who is a former Kansan Joe. Anyway, my question is this. I, in later years as a legally blind person, went back and got my certification as a certified orientation and mobility instructor. And that's what I've been doing for the last several years. I have had the opportunity a couple of times to request a, uh, an audible signal for 
a resident who needed one in a particular area, as you have described. And that process in both cases uh, in which I've been involved took seven months. When I was in comm school in Lubbock, Texas at Texas Tech, their answer to that issue was that if somebody moves, they would take a, an audible signal out of a given area and move it to another area where it was being requested. Now, I've always had a problem with that because it seems to me that once an intersection is made accessible, it should not be made unaccessible simply because one or two residents move. But I am uncertain as to how the law addresses that type of a practice. And that's my question. Thank you very much and good to hear your voice. Thanks, Michael. Well, that's a nice, that's an interesting question, Michael. Uh, I'm not aware that the law addresses that directly, but yeah, I think uh, traffic signals are fixtures, right? You, you stick them in cement in the ground. Uh, the notion that you could rip a pole out uh, and, and transfer a signal to another location is truly bizarre. Also, Accessible pedestrian signals, um, they don't cost that much. I mean, several years ago in Minnesota, they were bought by the state in bulk, and they were, oh, I don't know, $400. So it just it would cost far more to move one than it would cost to install a new one at another location. So that doesn't make any sense. And I would probably file a complaint with the FHWA, which may or may not result in anything, but it would be worth trying because just, that's just silly. All right. Phone number ending in 0649. Can you hear me? Yes. Hello? Yes, we Hi. hear you. Um, okay. Our paratransit here locally, just within the past couple of years, implemented what they call a negotiated time. Um, if, especially during peak hours, if they are full, if their schedule is full, they will try to negotiate a different time to pick you up. And that time could be an hour or even more um, beyond where, when you want to be picked up. And then you get on the bus and they say that it can, they have up to two hours to drop you off. And uh, um, I don't think that's at all. I, legal, I just but I'll, let, I'll let Ron comment yeah. on that, but I, that, that doesn't, that strikes me as completely inconsistent with the regulations. It, the it makes it regulation. impossible to use for work. It's impossible yeah. to use for work anymore. Yep. So this is Ron, and and the a transit agency has the right legally to negotiate a pickup time of up to one hour on either side of a time that you request. However, um, the FTA has ruled that the purpose of the trip has to be factored into that conversation. So, for example, if you are trying to set a trip to go to work and you tell the agency, I need to be at work by nine, they can't offer you a pickup time that is designed to get you to work after nine because it negates the purpose of the trip. So, um, and, and nothing is legal beyond an hour. So any, as soon as they offer you a time that's more than an hour on either side of the time you requested, um, or that gets you to an appointment after the appointment is supposed to start, they have broken the law. And and that you have a right to file um, a, a you know a complaint. We can talk more you know about that process later. But you know, generally speaking, 
you know, it's always a good idea to start with the local complaint process. But as soon as the law is broken, you certainly have a right. Um, and if it keeps happening, I would say a responsibility uh, to contact the uh, Office of Civil Rights within the Federal Transit Administration and file an official complaint um, so that they can have the opportunity to explain their conduct to the people who give them money and regulate their compliance. All right, 8475, you are unmuted. Hi, this is Annette from St. Louis, Missouri, and um, I also have an issue about the audible pedestrian signal. It was very interesting what you said that it only cost $400 because when I contacted my alderman to put one in, he said, I can't afford it. I have a ward budget of 300000 and I have to get all my city services done, my garbage and all this kind of thing he was mentioning to me. So um, I thought that, you know, this is a safety issue, that it should get a lot more priority than to be told, I can't afford it. And right. then another so thing I, first of all, yeah. First of all, I can't. Uh, the $400 figure I gave you is, A, mm-hmm. several years old, and B, was based on the fact that the Minnesota Department of Transportation bought them in bulk and uh-huh. then made them available, as opposed to an individual, you know, alderman buying, you know, one uh, wholesale. I, I can't answer that question. But what I can say is the question to respond to that alderman is, what you're saying is, I'm not a priority. I mean, that's what, when somebody says we don't have enough money, all right, that's essentially uh, a, a political way of ducking the issue. Because the question is always, we have enough money for some priorities, all right? Um, but why am I not a priority? Why is my safety not a priority? Why is the, why is the right of, of people with disabilities not a priority? And, um, you know, one of the things we can do, and it's one of the things that we did in Minnesota, is um, there should be a city uh, council uh, committee on, uh, sometimes it's a public work committee, sometimes it's a transportation committee, whatever they call it. Um, and, uh, you know, you can go to the committee in open sessions and say, you know, what is the issue here? This is a, this is a serious problem. And it shouldn't be solely within the uh, budget of one member of the city council or one member of Alderman to provide uh, an accessible pedestrian uh, signal and try to deal with it that way, which is both political in terms of putting pressure on the Alderman, it looks bad, um, but also um, trying to get a, a better way of funding those. Um, so mm-hmm. that would be my gratuitous suggestion. And another thing that he mentioned, he, he already had one put aside for another intersection, and I said, well, how did you decide to put it there? And he said, oh, I just thought it should go there because there's a bus stop. And I said, did somebody request that? And he said, no, I just thought it should go there. So I said, well, fine, then you take that one and you put it where I want it because I'm requesting this. So eventually he did do that, and it took, uh, it took another alderman to get involved with another blind lady in the community because they both, the two wards, they share that intersection. So like that other man said, it took me six or eight months to get this done. So for anybody out there who wants to do it, think that it's be persistent because you're probably going to have a fight on your hands. Yeah, it's not always that bad. And when it's that bad, then uh, that's a basis for doing some organizing within your affiliate to try to put prep because that, that's a broken system. It's not an illegal system, but it's a broken system. 
right, Andy, you need to unmute yourself. You can go ahead. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, um, referring back to your bus driver announcing the stops, um, when a passenger requests it, do they have to announce the actual bus stop itself or can they just say, oh, okay, so-and-so, here's your bus stop? Because I know a lot of times, you know, we live in a city that's about 81,000 people. The public transit system here is like, mm, the total bus route's like 19 bus fleet. So, you know, I know quite a few of the bus drivers well, on, some yeah. of the, on some of the routes. So what they'll do is they'll it has say, to be It has to be effective. If, if you're on the bus and you know that the bus driver is talking to you, because you're the person that's requested the bus stop and they say, this is your stop coming up. If they give you enough notice so that the bus can stop and you can get off, you know, then they've, they've given you notice. But um, I mean, it's not a very professional way to do it, but it, you know, I mean, it's a practical matter as to whether or not they're giving you notice in advance that your stop is coming up and they stop at your stop and you yeah. know, they should do it professionally. But if they don't, if, as long as they give you, adequate notice and you know who they're talking to, then I wouldn't complain about it. Okay, Linda, you can unmute yourself. Okay, I have a question. Um, when I used to live in Florida, I used to take the bus this way. I got to shut my speech off here. Hold on. I have to shut it off. Okay. Um, I'm also hearing impaired. And when I used to ride the bus, I used to have uh, problems with hearing uh, the announcements of the bus stops because of two reasons. One, if they had a person in a wheelchair on the bus, they got priority for the front seat. So I couldn't hear the announcements. And two, um, I wondered if there's any way, um, you know, uh, any kind of accessibility provisions for people that or deafblind, where they can be on a bus and be able to hear the announcements regardless. I mean, sometimes there's people that, that you know, noisy, rowdy people, drunks, and <laughs> they get on the bus and it makes it very hard to hear the bus stop announcements. I, I don't live there anymore, but, I, you know, we're just talking in general everywhere, transportation. So I thought I'd ask. Okay, that's a good question. Now, um, uh, I'm surprised that one person in a wheelchair would take up uh, space on both sides of the aisle such that you could not sit uh, on one side or the other by the driver. I mean, because generally speaking on buses, there's more room than that. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm simply saying that's not an experience I've had. Um, but in terms of deafblind people, um, I don't have an answer for that, um, and maybe uh, Ron knows knows an answer. Uh, there may be some assistive technology that, the, that an individual can use, but I don't know in terms of the system uh, how that would be dealt with. Yeah, uh, just a, first off, Linda, what city was this in Florida? Just, oh, she, she's been muted again. So okay, she's on. no problem. So yeah. if it, it is possible that if this was a smaller city with smaller vehicles, 
uh, a lot of the, the smaller cities in Florida use cutaways on bus routes. Um, so um, it's possible that it was a, a cutaway that was used instead of regular bus, which would create the scenario that she's describing. Um, as far as the technology solution, I think there are newer uh, technology solutions that could help. I think, I think this is a, a case where it's really case by case. And this is why uh, paratransit exists. Um, it is to assist people who cannot use public transit because of a disability. And this is a case where there may not be an operational, an easy operational solution, in which case paratransit should, you know, should be available. Um, but um, the thing that I would probably be looking at now would be to uh, talk to the, the trans, you know, find out is there a mobile app that you could use um, that would give you the same information. So I would probably be looking for solutions uh, that the customer can implement. Uh, the transit system may not be able to solve it, but that's what paratransit uh, should also be there to solve for. Thank you, Sheila, so good on questions. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's time for us to um, wrap up this session. I want to thank everybody for their strong participation. And, um, and I want to thank Ron a, for helping me out here. <laughs> and that was a, a very informative presentation, Chris. And I really enjoyed how you thoughtfully listened to people's questions and sort of parse the difference between what was legal, what is practical, what is fair, because we're so often caught in those predicaments. Um, I would like to take just a second before introducing our next speaker and remind everyone that um, it is the Transportation Committee and the Environmental Access Committee who are both presenting these. And I mentioned Becky Davidson, the transportation of the Environmental Access Committee earlier, but because we've been running late, we, she hasn't had a chance to say hi. And I'm just wondering, Becky, if, if you're there, if you would like to say anything now or hold off till tomorrow, what, whatever your pleasure would be. So she and the attendees, is that what you're saying? Uh, she's actually, well, I guess she's an attendee today. I guess she is. She isn't a presenter until tomorrow. So I don't know, maybe she can't hop up and do this. Yeah, today. She'd need to raise her hand. So I'd yeah. have to find her. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I want you all to know that Becky Davidson has worked very hard on this and she is here with us and has been ably chairing. So is this the end of your transportation presentation? No, no. no we are introducing more. a third speaker right now. Okay, perfect. Okay, I just didn't want to... Go. Okay. No, no, no. No, I just <laughs> wanted to take okay. a second and bring you Becky into the, into the picture. And now um, it is time for us to hear from Adam Cohen, who's mm. a research associate at the University of California at Berkeley. And Adam is going to talk about, um, he's going to give us some updates on emerging, tech, emerging technologies and all the services impacting transportation and environmental access. Um, I am really into the future. And so I'm really looking forward to what Adam has to say. So welcome, Adam, and take about 45 minutes. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it, and thank you for the invitation to speak today. Can everybody hear me okay? Yes. Okay, wonderful. Um, so yes, so I um, am a researcher over at UC Berkeley in innovative and emerging uh, mobility technologies, and I'm here today 
uh, to talk a little bit about uh, kind of mobility on demand, kind of what is going on kind of in the industry, talk about some opportunities and challenges. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about kind of an equity framework that we work on developing with the U.S. Department of Transportation, talk about kind of the role of the built environment and some common use cases and partnerships. And then I want to talk about a bunch of specific modes and, 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 and some nuances and issues with, with each of those modes um, and talk a little bit kind of about the future in the context of automated vehicles. Um, I will be glad to take um, some questions as I go through the presentation and then also take some questions at the end. Um, just bear in mind that um, I may not always see everybody's hand raised, but I do see that there are about four currently. Is there anybody that had a question currently on this presentation? Okay, wonderful. Yeah, I, I just lowered everybody's hand so we could start from scratch. Perfect, okay. Yeah, but if you, you have a question as I'm going through the presentation, you know, please do um, raise your hand and I will do my best to, to catch you and, and, and call on you as I'm going through the presentation. Um, so first, uh, what is kind of mobility on demand? Well, mobility on demand is really a concept that has emerged over the past two decades. Um, and it's based on this concept that, you know, um, you know, transportation is a commodity where modes have economic values that are distinguishable in terms of cost, journey time, wait time, number of connections, how convenient it is, and a variety of other attributes. Um, and it's the idea that basically, you know, we're enabling consumers access to mobility, goods, and services on demand, um, whether it be using shared mobility, which I'm gonna talk a lot about, um, delivery services, public transportation, or even digital delivery of services potentially that would eliminate the need for a physical trip. Um, and it's all about kind of creating this integrated and connected multimodal network. Um, so examples of you know, mobility on demand include public transportation, paratransit, transportation network companies or, or TNCs such as Lyft and Uber, uh, microtransit, um, which I'm going to talk more about in a moment, but um, if you've heard of a service called VIA, um, it, it's, a, it's a private sector uh, transit service um, offering mostly demand responsive services. Um, Micromobility, bike and scooter sharing, um, which I'll talk a little bit about because of that has a variety of equity implications in, in the context of curb space management, and then talk about uh, kind of a large kind of realm of automated vehicles. Um, and really, you know, what we see with these services is that, you know, the most advanced forms of, of mod really incorporate uh, trip planning, uh, booking, uh, real-time information services, sometimes fare payment integration into a single user interface. And it's that single app-based interface um, that some people, uh, you know, typically refer to as mobility as a service. Um, and there's a lot of innovative and emerging uh, technologies that can feed into this. Um, everything from robotic delivery uh, to drone delivery and other services. Um, I won't talk about too much of those, um, but I'm happy to talk a little bit about, about that maybe in the questions. 
But in the context of all these innovative and emerging automated services, it's really important that we, you know, incorporate equity um, for, you know, individuals and, and, and travelers and non-users of these systems with a variety of disabilities to make sure that um, they can access them, they can sense where they're at, um, and it, it, you know, is a value added and not, it doesn't create risks or challenges. So one of the things that we have done, um, oh, I see a question from Sheila. My question is, um, I have multiple disabilities, including multiple chemical sensitivity, migraines, and asthma, and I can't ride in Ubers and Lyfts reliably anymore because every damn one of their drivers has to have an air freshener. And the excuse I'm given by many is, um, and by the companies themselves, is that, oh, they can do whatever they want. But it means that I have to use paratransit more often. And I would like the flexibility that the TNCs would allow me. Um, I, I'd like some discussion of how can we leverage that? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the things, you know, that, that, that we've seen and, and it's, you know, ADA is a wonderful law, but one of the things that we've seen is a real emphasis on particular types of disabilities. And so one of the things that we really need to do is, you know, work with the private sector in terms of, you know, identifying ways that we can make things easier for travelers with disabilities and, I, and what types of identifying characteristics might be helpful. So for example, you know, you know, and this is the first time I, I've heard of this with the air freshener, but, you know, you know, is there a way, you know, for them to, you know, program that in as an attribute? And if you have some sort of, um, you know, sensitive smell or something, you know, that you could kind of search or automatically, you know, not accept, you know, you know, rides that, you know, have that type of characteristic, you know, listed. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of, because it's so easy with these digital platforms um, to, you know, be able to kind of identify and kind of include what these characteristics are, but they haven't been customized yet to be able to do that. So one of the things that we have developed for the U.S. Department of Transportation is known as the STEPS Equity Framework. Um, STEPS stands for Spatial, Temporal, Economic, Physiological, and Social. And we really you know, developed this framework as a way to kind of expanding the conversation around equity um, and broadening it further. And so you know, one of the things that we had hoped that, that this would guide both the public and private sector is kind of a new lens of how to expand services um, for, for folks that may have a variety of challenges accessing uh, mobility services. Um, so spatial barriers, you know, or anything that creates a physical gap in the transportation network. This could be lack of a service in a particular neighborhood, long distances between destinations or transfers, um, or the lack of public transit or even paratransit, um, you know, within a particular distance. Um, you know, temporal is really, those are about barriers that create uh, gaps in the transportation network um, during particular travel times, you know, such as the inability to complete an off-peak or a late-night trip due to a lack of service, um, very long public transit headways, 
um, those types of things. Uh, barriers, um, and with economic barriers, those include financial challenges such as high cost of services, um, it could be surge pricing, um, indirect costs um, from the equipment used to access the service, um, structural barriers such as banking access, what we like to call um, unbanked and underbanked users um, that may prohibit um, or limit the use of MOD. Um, physiological barriers are really those um, physical, cognitive, and other limitations that just make using a particular mode difficult or impossible um, for uh, you know, people with disabilities, older adults, and others. Um, and then social barriers include uh, social, cultural, um, safety, uh, language, and kind of a variety of other aspects that may inhibit um, a potential user's comfort with a service. Um, it could include things like poorly targeted marketing, um, lack of multi-language information, um, and, and I include Braille in that as well as far as multi-language, um, and then, uh, you know, neighborhood crime as well. So these are just kind of some of the many, many examples of, um, of kind of the STEPS framework and, and how we kind of developed it to try to really kind of expand, you know, traditional thinking around, um, you know, equity and access. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit um, kind of about kind of the role of the built environment, uh, because so much of what we see in terms of access and how these services operate are really impacted by the types of built environments. So one of the things that we have developed for the U.S. Department of Transportation is kind of a typology of what we call five common built environments in the U.S. Um, the first one is city center. Um, these are really highly urbanized areas, um, you, know, you know, urban business districts and the immediate surrounding neighborhoods. Um, suburban areas, um, which are less um, urbanized development, um, lower density residential, um, typically fewer jobs. Um, areas that we call edge cities. Um, and these are kind of a, a kind of a hybrid of, you know, more urban centers, but they've got kind of suburban flavor to it, and they're not a real walkable built environment. Um, they're usually focused around highway interchanges and rail stations, um, and usually have higher concentrations of office and retail, sometimes with multifamily residences. So for those that are familiar with air places like Tyson's Corner, would be a great example of an edge city for those that are familiar with the DC area. Um, and then the other two types of built environments are exurban. So these are even more low density areas, typically on the urban fringe, and then um, rural areas. And and we see Adam, you have another uh, person that has a question. Okay, is this a good time? Yes, absolutely. Okay, it's my sweet friend Jamaica from Georgia. Jamaica, you can unmute yourself, hon. Yes, um, I wanted to ask about the. Um, about if there's any special um, technology that could be done with with jaws for some of the some of the um, technology because I'm having some trouble with the technology with my nonprofit that is being very it's being very 
Uh, this probably wouldn't be the right place, Jamaica, for that. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, that's all right, hon. Thank you. Thank, thank you, hon. Um, so we see a variety of challenges um, with each of these built environments. And a lot of the services, you know, tend to be developed around trying to accommodate and overcome these different physical challenges in the built environment. So for like places like urban centers, a lot of the services that develop there are really uh, aimed at addressing, you know, limited parking and loading zones, um, you know, typically a lot of curb congestion, a lot of roadway congestion, uh, maybe overcrowding of public transit, um, you know, and, and in contrast, you know, in a suburban area, you know, the services are really about, you know, bridging gaps, possibly replacing public transit or um, addressing use cases where public transit just is not available, not frequent, um, or maybe even high cost for a public agency to operate. Um, and, you know, and, and some of these other built environments, you know, we, we see, you know, real efforts to, you know, expand access to, you know, active transportation, such as walking um, and other types of services. You know, and in these, in these ex-urban ex rural areas, a lot of the services tend to focus more on kind of overcoming lack of transit and really long distance um, travel times. So these are just a little bit of an example. So as I kind of talk a little bit about these services, just please keep in mind that a lot of the services that are evolving um, generally start with addressing one of these physical, you know, urban typologies, generally speaking. And so, you know, the next thing, you know, that I wanted to share, and there's a whole slide deck uh, that's available. Um, some people might be following along. Um, if not, it's available afterwards. But, you know, slide seven here kind of really just kind of explains, you know, some of the examples of these types of use cases, and they kind of blur together with partnership types. So, you know, we've seen um, services that kind of emphasize first and last mile connections uh, to public transportation. So um, these are really about overcoming, you know, gaps in getting to and from fixed route transit. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of public agencies leveraging shared mobility or mobility on demand, um, you know, to bridge these spatial gaps and increase access to public transit. Um, we're seeing a lot of uh, services targeting low density environments, um, you know, to either, you know, provide a more cost effective strategy um, if public transit is not cost effective or to provide a better level of service because with a smaller vehicle type, you may be able to provide more frequent or more demand responsive service um, than a fixed route. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of, uh, you know, agencies exploring with these gap filling services in these suburban communities. Um, you know, another um, common partnership that we're really seeing is with the off-peak market, um, really kind of targeting, you know, mostly the late night, you know, and weekend uh, services, um, you know, to try to really kind of reduce wait times, um, whether it be um, in an outdoor area or after dark. Um, you know, and, and partnering with service providers um, to provide better services, um, fewer transfers, more direct routing in these off-peak periods. And then the other area, 
that we're seeing a, a lot of partnerships with is really with paratransit and kind of partnering with a variety of shared mobility service providers to um, try to provide an enhanced customer experience if possible. Uh, that could be a reduction in the minimum advanced booking timeline, um, reduced wait times, uh, better, more on-demand information for the user, um, a variety of different applications there. And in some cases, um, you know, we're seeing with the public transit service of trying to, I don't want to say triage, but, but really try to take the existing population that's using public transit and, and see if we can't, um, you know, provide more services for them and more customized services. So, um, you know, for some folks, you know, using public or paratransit might be the best option, but for other folks, you know, you know, a partnership with a TNC, for example, might offer a better service for a particular trip. And we're seeing, um, you know, you know, people being a little bit more flexible and trying to use, um, kind of the right service for the right trip. And it may not be the same thing for all trips. And, and so that's, we're seeing a lot of agencies kind of explore with this in the paratransit context. So I wanted to, I see a, a, a question from Andy. Andy, do you want to ask your question? Um, you were mentioning just now about the uh, paratransit par partnering with like shared ride service, like cab companies and Lyft and Uber and whatever is in the area. Um, I know back in 2014, it was Detroit was doing something similar to that. And as a matter of fact, it was their primary way of doing things. Uh, can you talk about the accessibility of something like that? Uh, like what kind of laws would be need would need to be put into place in order to make that effective. Mm -hmm. Because one of the things that I ran across is I would set up a paratransit ride. Well, one day a yellow cab might come, the next day a paratransit might come, the next day a private driver might come. And they said their drivers talk to no one at all. And what they do is they would put a physical sign up in their window that says paratransit service. And that's the only way you knew that that's your ride. <laughs> so can you talk about the accessibility issues with that? Absolutely. What I would like to do is actually, I'm going to talk a lot about that momentarily about paratransit and TNCs. So if it's all right, um, can I come back to that question in a couple minutes? And if I don't address it, I want you to raise your hand again, if that's okay. So um, I want to talk a little bit about kind of the mobility on demand sandbox demonstration. So um, this is a uh, federal transit administration uh, program that really provides a venue where these types of concepts and strategies um, can be explored in uh, real world demonstration settings. And so they approved $8 million of funding a couple years ago, and they are wrapping up 12 demonstration programs that include a variety of use cases, um, everything that from specific to paratransit to uh, TNC partnerships for late night services, um, uh, low density services, a variety of different applications and, and programs. 
Um, and key goals of the sandbox is really to improving uh, the transportation efficiency, um, to promote accessible and seamless multimodal services, to increase the effectiveness of, of these services, and to really kind of enhance the customer experience to provide more individualized, equitable, and accessible traveler-centric services. Um, I'm excited to share that you know, our team um, in, in partnership with ICF is the national independent evaluator of this program. And some of the early lessons learned, and I'm gonna talk a lot about kind of some specific examples momentarily, but some of the early lessons learned that we've seen from the sandbox um, is that you know, public agencies um, you know, really like the flexibility to be able to kind of engage in non-traditional procurement methods, being able to name specific partners, um, you know, others, you know, you know, prefer more um, traditional RFP type process. Um, public agencies um, and uh, private partners were really kind of ambitious in their projects. Um, and so, you know, we see, um, you know, having to really kind of rescope and downsize, um, you know, the, their, their projects. Um, in some cases, um, we saw um, programs that were well-intentioned, um, but aspects of projects that in practice didn't pan out as, 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 as anticipated. So I'll give you an example. Um, so there was a program that, that partnered with a carpool provider um, to, uh, the, the goal of the program is to provide on-demand carpooling to a transit agency. And as part of that, the transit agency, um, you know, wanted to ensure that um, the user could um, request a wheelchair accessible uh, vehicle to carpool with very well intentioned, um, but the, but that particular part of the program never got off the ground in part because, well, there were, there were, there were some issues with the vendor, but in part, the reason it didn't get off the ground also is that there was some concern on the vendor side that the number of people willing or, or able with a vehicle that could, that could hold a scooter or a large wheelchair um, and the number of folks requesting it, that they wouldn't pair up for carpooling to get to public transit, and that maybe a, a different type of service, whether it be paratransit or something else, to fill that gap would have been more appropriate. Um, so, so, so in this case, you know, you know, there was some concern that you know we want to get people to public transit, and maybe you know putting that functionality in carpooling is not providing the best service possible. So there were some things such as that, that, that came up that we're still beginning to kind of identify those lessons learned. Um, many public agencies noted challenges working with private vendors, particularly related to contracting um, as well as data agreements. Um, we know that a number of public agencies expressed concern um, regarding the reliability of private sector partners, partners that would increase the cost of services, that didn't want to continue services after the demonstration period because their business model had changed, um, you know, or, serv or services that 
you know, said they were going to do something and then didn't follow through with everything they said they were going to do. Um, and then other programs have, are finding it difficult to sustain their, their programs post-pilot for a variety of factors due to institutional challenges with the way certain laws are written, um, such as FTA, drug and alcohol testing requirements, among others. Um, and so this is just kind of a very high-level overview, and I'm going to go into some more details momentarily. Uh, Don, you have a question. Um, I think it's really important, too. I, I, this goes right along with what you're saying. I think all of the players need to look at kind of changing the mindset. And let me tell you why I say our local paratransit system, I have multiple disabilities, so I'm blind and I have physical disabilities, so I need door-to-door -door uh, door -door service. And our local paratransit system has been very good about that, but they have a deal with a local taxi company so that if you're going less than a certain amount, you know, a certain distance, that local company, they, they can tell the taxi to pick you up. And it's really a terrific option because it means that you don't necessarily have to wait two hours between the, the, the trips, you know, and that sort of thing. However, as part of the deal they made with that taxi company, that taxi company will not provide door-to-door uh, -door service. Uh, that's why they've stopped serving me completely. But when I found out that the paratransit company made the agreement with the taxi company, I asked them if they would be willing to tell me whether that was part of the agreement, not because I wanted to complain about the para company, but I wanted to make sure that there wasn't an inconsistency with, with what the cab company was saying. And sure enough, they have that agreement. And I, all I'm suggesting is that there needs to be some discussion of, of how we can make, how, how everyone can think in a more flexible fashion in order for these things to work. Absolutely. And you know, you know one thing that also that we see that's really innovative is that we've seen a, a number of providers try to develop video libraries to train their drivers on the spot to respond to a variety of things that they may not see on a regular basis. Um, and so there's a number of providers that have, you know, tried developing like video libraries. So if, if, if they, you know, identify a passenger with, or if a passenger identifies themselves with a particular need, and they haven't come across it before they, they do the pickup, they can watch a quick video in terms of, you know, what are things they need to ask for? What are things that they should focus on? Um, and so these are types of tools that I think, you know, as, as an industry, you know, we could continue to kind of try to refine and deploy to really kind of improve driver services, um, even if it's not a, a professionally trained driver in all cases. Sheila, you have a question. I don't know where this question falls because it's one of these multi-box questions and it's about first mile, last mile. Um, I was taking a paratransit trip from Oakland to Fremont, which is about 20 minutes, 20 miles ish. Um, and, um, but, but I didn't know how to get to the place in Fremont. And so I took paratransit because I've had these issues with the, 
Uber and Lyft companies, and I couldn't do the last mile that way. Um, and I was told by the paratransit company later that when they look at figuring out the time it would take a person on public transit, they're only looking at fixed route and not anything like a TNC. And I understand in some cases why that might be and, and their stuff is out of date and all that. They don't even have TNCs in, in their rule book, I don't think. But I, I would like to learn about, um, is that lawful? Can we now request that TNCs be a part of the transit network or not? And if not, how do we plan these things so that, I don't know. I'm, I'm not... I want. I wanted to be able to get down to Fremont Bart and then call an Uber Lyft, mm -hmm. um, but I knew that that was going to be problematic for me. And Paratransit doesn't look at anything unless you talk buses, and in Fremont buses are horrible. So they were expecting me to be there on three hours. So you know. So whether it's legal, I'm not a legal expert. You know, and, and I would refer you. Uh, to FTA and there's the Bonnie Gray's over FTA is a really great resource, um, you know, and I'm happy to kind of share, um, you know, share her contact information um, with folks, um, you know, for, for specifics on the legal questions. What I can tell you is, is that, you know, for, for, you know, we've gotten at a very high level, really good at trip planning, meaning, you know, you know, Meaning, you know, you can go into Google, you can you can map out your route, you can you can see different modes. There's a lot of apps that do similar things. What we haven't gotten good with though is providing that same service for for people with a variety of different disabilities. And that I think is really what, what as an industry and and we need to be advocating for is the development of basically a fully accessible trip planner that allows you to identify what those connections are with the type of you know disability that 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 an individual has so that way you have a complete trip and that's where we we have not done a real good job now are you ready for ted and joanne yes yes uh, i live in houston texas i am uh, my uh, wife and i both live in a nursing home together I'm totally blind and I use a manual wheelchair. She's a dialysis patient and her stamina isn't that wonderful. Uh, most of the time we take uh, the paratransit in Houston Metrolift, but um, about a year ago, we needed to go to the bank and do some short distance uh, traveling. The bank uh, from the nursing home we used to live in is about four blocks away. So we called up Yellow Cab to do a um, uh, Metro subsidy program where you pay the first uh, dollar and then Metro pays for the next $10, I think, and so on. But to get a cab that will that is able to carry me in my wheelchair because I, I physically cannot transfer into the seat, mm -hmm. um, it took us at least two hours, if not more, to get a cab to even get to the nursing home. And then once we took care of our business at the bank, once we got there, um, 
it took us three or four hours and actually had to walk across the street to a Walgreens because the bank was closing at four. We did not get picked up to go back to the nursing home for another, like I said, three or four hours. We could not get a trip. Um, Uber or Lyft isn't, is out of the question because there's no such thing to my knowledge, even in this large city, uh, as uh, wheelchair accessible Uber and Lyft. Do you see that by chance being an option in the future to be uh, wheelchair accessible? Because it seems like the cab services um, are it's extremely inefficient. Yeah. Uh, even if you're going um, a few blocks, even to a mile and a half, it would be more convenient and more financially feasible and probably take a load off of the paratransit to go a mile and a half or so on these yellow cabs or Uber or Lyft. But it's, it, uh, they don't want to take the trips or if they do take a trip, it's hours upon hours of waiting. Yeah. You know, I, a few blocks. yeah, I'd like to say that, you know, you know, that, that, that there is a strategy. Um, and I wish I, I had, I had a, a better, a better answer for you, but, you know, I, I think really, you know, the opportunity, um, I, well, I think as long as people are using private vehicles in that TMC network, we're going to be limited by a variety of vehicle types that aren't standardized um, and that have a variety of accessibility challenges. I think the real opportunities when we start looking forward into the future with automated vehicles, you know, we've got a real ability to do a variety of different um, vehicle designs, make them much more flexible and the ability to accommodate, uh, you know, you know, travelers in a way that, that traditional vehicles today just can't do. This is Sheila, the MC, and I just wanted to say that we're probably down to our last five minutes, so. Okay. Um, okay. Sean, you can unmute yourself. Yeah, just real quick for Ted and Joanne. Um, Uber has, I believe, something called Uber Assist, but it's only in certain markets. So you may want to, I can't remember if it's Uber or Lyft, but I remember Assist being one of the types, but then it said it wasn't available in my area. So you might contact them and say, hey, we have a need for it. Um, is this something y'all could look at? Because it is market dependent, but just something to be aware of. And I will go ahead and mute myself. Thank you. Um, I want to get through just a couple more slides and then I'll take kind of the remaining questions at the very end, if that's okay with you, Sheila. I'm afraid this Zoom meeting is a uh, meeting is going to, room is going to be needed and we're already going to be 15 minutes over. So that's why I sadly gave you the five minute warning. That's perfect. Okay. So, so, you know, there's a variety of use cases that, that are provided here based on based on modes. I think we've talked a lot about kind of TNCs and paratransit. Um, you know, I want to kind of talk just very briefly about microtransit. Um, it's this, um, you know, demand responsive typically uh, service that typically uses vans um, and it's being kind of used kind of in, in conjunction with paratransit in a similar type of way, um, you know, with, an, with, a self, with a smartphone app. Um, and there's a variety of partnerships forming around that. 
Um, you know, another area that we really need to be doing a lot better on is with micromobility um, and curb space management. We know that a lot of people are dropping these devices on um, just kind of randomly. They create a lot of hazards for a variety of uh, people with, with, with a variety of different disabilities as well as older adults. And so we need to get really much better at kind of advocating for public policy um, and better enforcement and uh, in terms of moving devices that are parked incorrectly and also um, conducting education outreach so that way devices are parked correctly um, in the first place. Um, you know, I talked a little bit about kind of how automated vehicles can kind of really kind of change kind of the future and, and really it, it allows us to create a variety of different vehicle sizes and vehicle types, uh, everything from, from automated Ubers to paratransit to public, to, to public transit vehicles. But really kind of some of the key questions is, is you know, will, will we need an actual human to provide assistance and under what circumstances or could advanced technologies help fill those gaps, whether it be through, um, whether it be through, you know, uh, you know, automated and artificial intelligence and, and communicating with individuals, whether it be through robotic arms, a, a variety of different, different technologies. And so one of the things that the USDOT is doing is they've established the Accessible Transportation Technologies Research Initiative, known as ATRI, to really help kind of develop technologies around wayfinding navigation, uh, pre-trip concierge services, um, intersection crossings, as well as kind of robotics and automation. Um, some other initiatives that, that, that we're working on is with the Transportation Research Board, uh, the Airport Cooperative Research Program, they have undertaken a project known as um, 0148, which is really about developing a guidebook tool um, to help people with disabilities navigate the complete trip um, through an airport. Um, and so these are some, some of the ongoing initiatives that are um, currently underway. Um, we do know that, you know, in this current environment, you know, COVID-19 is really presenting numerous challenges um, in terms of, you know, cancellation or reduction of public transit service, changes in how users interact with public transit. I know we talked about that on the previous ones about kind of fare payment. And, you know, we really need to be um, kind of identifying these issues and advocating uh, to, to FTA and public transit in terms of how to overcome new challenges that arise due to the current pandemic. Um, I will pause there. I, I provide my contact information. My slide deck is available for, for everyone. I would be happy to, to if, if anybody wants to reach out to me afterwards, um, you know, please feel free to kind of share my contact information. I'll be happy to respond uh, via email that works for folks. Uh, and and um, well, I, I really wish that we'd had hours for everyone to speak. And uh, I get very excited, Adam, when I think about sort of the exotic puzzle of how things are going to fit together in the future. You know, maybe I'll go a mile on a horse and a mile on a dragon and a mile in an Uber. And um, and I want to thank all three of our presenters today and all three of our presenters have materials available up on acbconvention.org in the um, downloadable document section. And I do believe that uh, 
we have an ending CEOQ code. And um, I just want to make sure everybody comes back tomorrow if you're interested at three where we will have reading signals and navigating pedestrian chaos. And then we will also have a presentation that will be Becky Davidson and Karen Gorgi. And then Pat Sheehan will be presenting paratransit and the new mobility paradigm. So thanks to everyone. And Cindy, if you'll please give out our CEU vote. Yes, ma'am. 680F as in Foxtrot. Five, that's six eight zero Foxtrot five. And thanks so much again to everybody for attending.